Welcome to another podcast from the Royal College of Psychiatrists. My name is Raj Basord, and I'm a consultant psychiatrist at the Bethlehem Royal and Maudsley Hospitals in South London. Today, we're discussing a very interesting paper due to come out in the February edition of the British Journal of Psychiatry. The title is Neural Correlates of the Misattribution of Speech in Schizophrenia. And this is some very interesting research trying to examine what's going on in people's minds and brains when people are hearing voices. I have with me today the lead author of the paper, Paul Allen, a research psychologist based at the Institute of Psychiatry. Now, Paul, this paper is about... Uh, what you refer to as auditory verbal hallucinations. Many That's people, correct. Many people would know this as hearing voices. What do we mean by hearing voices? Well, they're a common experience in um, psychotic illness, particularly schizophrenia and other schizophreniform spectrum uh, disorders. Their incidence rate is around sort of 50 to 60%. And what we mean is usually um, sentences and voices that patients hear They often find them quite distressing. They're usually um, derogatory, although not always. Sometimes they um, take the form of commands as well or a kind of running commentary on the um, day-to-day behaviour of the patients. They're considered a core symptom of of psychosis and are used diagnostically as well along with other symptoms such as delusions. So when um, people talk about hearing voices, are they having experience very much um, like like my voice now, when you're hearing my voice? Does it sound very similar to that? Well, the phenomenology of um, hearing voices is quite complicated. There's been some research into this, but it seems that there's no hard and fast rules, if you like. Some patients will experience the voice as coming from inside their head. They often form um, delusional type explanations for these experiences such as, they're, such as they're being spoken to by some sort of god or perhaps uh, thoughts or voices are being transmitted into their head. Others experience them actually in external space. Some patients might report that um, they're ex- hearing a voice from say over in the corner of the room behind a door behind a plant or something like that. So there's no real um, definite experience. It varies very much from patient to patient. It sounds as though patients are having a variety of experiences, but very often it does feel as though they're hearing a voice which appears to them as real as my voice is to you, and they often respond to it as if it's an experience that feels very real to them. So what are the different theories about what's going on? Because they're hearing a voice when there's no one else in the room. I mean, based on what you've just said, the obvious hypothesis or theory is that they are actually... um, having some sort of perceptual experience, even in the absence of any uh, external stimuli. Um, I suppose this hypothesis drove some of the early uh, imaging, neuroimaging research. Uh, Philip Maguire, I think, was one of the first people to look at what was going on inside the brain of patients with hallucinations back around 15 years ago now, using um, PET imaging. And the results. Philip Maguire is a research psychiatrist here at the Institute of Psychiatry. Yes, that's correct. And he's one of the authors, also the senior author on this paper. A lot of his work has been with hallucinations and other sort of symptoms within schizophrenia. What he found was that um, while patients were experiencing hallucinations, that they were activating areas of the brain involved with both language production, Broca's area, which is in the sort of left frontal part of the brain and also areas that were involved with language perception um, classically known as Wernicke's area in the left 
temporal lobe. So this is taken for granted now, but at the time I guess that was quite exciting research to show that when these patients had heard voices, had hallucinations, they were acti actually activating areas of the brain involved with normal language processing. So this to some extent explains the perceptual qualities and the language qualities. People can have hallucinations in all types of modalities, they can be visual, um, but also auditory hallucinations don't necessarily need to be verbal. Often people report hearing uh, music or tones or just strange non-language type sounds. But what was interesting about this research is that these were clearly language areas that were being activated. So um, what kind of research up until your paper today, what kind of research, can you give us a sense of that, has been done on people who are hearing voices in terms of trying to understand what's going on in the brain? Well, I guess the leading theory cognitively and neurocognitively has been the inner speech uh, theory. Put very simply, the idea is that um, inner speech, inner dialogue, thoughts, if you like, are misidentified or misattributed as emanating from an external source. So you and I are used to sitting down and maybe thinking about what we're having for dinner tonight or something like that, or maybe something a bit more profound, but we're perfectly able to identify the source of those thoughts as coming as being self-generated. Um, it's well known that thoughts, verbal thoughts, are associated with what we call sub-vocal articulation. So even though we're not speaking, there, there is small movement in the uh, throat musculature associated with this. What appears to be happening, or at least this is what the hypothesis is, that this process is going wrong somehow in patients with hallucinations. It's not that there's something wrong within a speech um, as such, it's what's become known as the monitoring or the verbal self-monitoring of inner speech. And it's this process that is thought to be defective in um, patients who hear voices. Much of the research done to date has tried to test this hypothesis both at a um, behavioural level and at a sort of biological neuroimaging level, with some mixed results uh, to date. So that sounds like a very strange idea that um, these patients make a mistake. They're having a thought. They seem to make a mistake in not realising that actually the thought is their own. They think it's some experience that's entering their brain from outside of the self, and therefore they come to the conclusion that it's a voice. Well, as I say, thoughts are, generally speaking, verbal experiences. Um, but you're quite right, it is, a, it, is, it is a strange idea. And the idea that's been put forward, I think, was um, largely pioneered by Chris Frith at the uh, Institute of Cognitive Neuroscience. He proposed that the brain... Um, has this implicit monitoring system, if you like, that not, is not just used for monitoring thoughts and inner speech, but all sorts of motor actions. So the brain can identify what's being self-generated, if you like, um, volitional, from something that's stimulus-driven, that's a response to an external stimulus, um, external to the self. And it's this system that is, this putative system that is thought to be defective. Um, without getting into the sort of complex workings of it, the brain has a system by which it, it signals to sensory parts of the brain when a movement or perhaps a thought has been self-generated as like a volitional signal. 
and this is supposedly disrupted in, in, in patients with hallucinations. So that theory that comes from Chris Firth at the Institute of Cognitive Neuroscience based in London um, it explains why you can't tickle yourself. That's that, correct. There's yes. a part of your brain that um, realises that you are tickling yourself and therefore you're having a very different experience as a result to someone else tickling you. That's correct, yes. Uh, Sarah uh, Jane Blakemore, who worked with Chris Firth, um, published some research on exactly this topic, a slightly frivolous-sounding title, but actually very a very serious piece of research in which, uh, again, they took patients, not just schizophrenia patients, but I think patients across a range of diagnoses who experienced what are known as passivity phenomenon. So again, this, is, this includes auditory verbal hallucinations, but also other symptoms such as delusions of control, the idea being that there's this lack of volition to certain actions or thoughts. So an experience like that would be a patient lifts their hand but believes some other force has caused the hand to be lifted. That's maybe correct. a demon or yes. they feel they're possessed or maybe aliens from outer space. So their, their, their bodily movements, which they are clearly initiating, they come to attribute to some other force. And that's what's known as a passivity phenomenon. That's exactly what it is. And the, this particular research found that, um, well, the, the theory would predict that the reason we can't tickle ourselves, which is a, a well-known fact, is that our brain is, is forward signaling our motor actions. So, for example, if we try to tickle the palm of our own hand, uh, the brain forwards the motor actions from your right hand, say, that you're using to tickle, so that the sensory areas of your brain associated with the palm of your left hand are aware of the impending motor action. Therefore, activity in this region of the brain is attenuated or dampened down, and the tickling sensation is less. And indeed, that's what they found in patients with these passivity phenomena. They reported the tickle sensation as more intense than um, patients and healthy um, individuals who, who reported it as being kind of quite a dull experience, just like when you try and tickle yourself. So this sort of fitted into the theory, at least in terms of motor actions, that um, there was a problem with this monitoring system, this feed-forward system in the brain. This idea is about the idea that the brain has some kind of mechanism within it that works out or detects whether some kind of experience is self-initiated, like a thought, or whether the experience is coming from outside the brain itself or the body itself, like hearing a voice that someone else is speaking. And when there's a defect in this mechanism, then actually the, the person finds it difficult to distinguish uh, between internal and external experiences. The kind of boundary between self and non-self gets fuzzy. And this explains a wide variety of psychotic symptoms, like why people make movements but think someone else is making the movement, or why they have thoughts but think their voice is coming from outside their head. Yes, that, that's correct. So tell us a bit about this research that you were conducting here. What did this involve? Well, I think here we took this as our basic model, but I think what, what we wanted to show also was that there was also a kind of conscious evaluation part to the process as well, a, a conscious component. The, the self-monitoring model is a fairly implicit, uh, subconscious, if you like, or pre-conscious sort of idea. What we found in this research is that when patients are making conscious judgments about the source of their speech, uh, pre-recorded speech, that they also tended to misidentify the speech as as uh, emanating from a sort of outside external source also. And that uh, this was also involved with brain areas that 
had been reported before as being involved in the inner speech models or the defective self-monitoring. So in a way, what the research is suggesting is that although defective monitoring may be one component to the experience, there are, there's also perhaps, um, I think what, what you can say with, with some certainty is that it, it doesn't explain the whole phenomenon, the whole experience, that there are possibly more sort of conscious um, levels to the experience as well. It kind of fits quite nicely with some of the literature to do with um, appraisals and um, it kind of suggests that biased reasoning maybe um, an externalizing sort of a tendency to to make sort of overconfident judgments perhaps which the research suggests is involved with with our delusions may also explain to a certain extent why patients with hallucinations tend to sort of misattribute their own sort of speech or thoughts to an external source. So in a way this is a less complicated theory than the previous theory. This theory is about the idea that when you're listening to something you don't seem to listen to it quite as carefully as most other people do and therefore you make mistakes over what you think you're listening to, and those mistakes may explain why people think they're hearing voices. The main aim of the research was to sort of test whether the inner, the sort of implicit self-monitoring model could explain this sort of misattribution of, of events. That, that, was the, that was the main sort of aim of the research, and I think what the research has shown is that it, it can't. There, there, t- there must be other, other factors involved as well. Um, you know, when... Uh, in this experiment, when uh, someone hears their own, hears the speech, it's either their own speech or, or alien speech, or the speech of another person, they have to make a decision as to whether they think it's theirs or somebody else's. That's obviously a conscious decision as opposed to the, the implicit kind of idea of a, in the self-monitoring theory, where it's, it's something that's happening sort of pre-consciously, um, you know, a feed-forward model. Um, and when patients are asked to make this sort of conscious decision, if you like, they, they still tend to show this, this bias. Okay, let's talk about the actual experiment. What, was, what, what did you ask the patients to do in this experiment? In this experiment, they were very simple, really. Before the experiment took place, they recorded, they were asked to read a list of words, single words. These words were recorded. Um, Half of them were then replaced by the voice of another person, which we called the alien voice, and half again were then uh, pitch shifted just to make it slightly harder for them to recognise. They were then, a bit later on, in this particular experiment in the fMRI scanner, played these words back just one by one at intervals of between sort of four and twelve seconds. They then had to make a decision as to whether they thought it was their voice. So if they thought it was their voice that they were hearing back, they just answered self through a button press. Uh, If they thought it was the voice of another person, they indicated that they thought it was another person. If they were unsure, they could make an unsure response also. Um, So that, that, that was basically the experiment. And what we saw was that patients with hallucinations compared to those without hallucinations and healthy controls were far more likely to hear their own voice and misattribute it to another person. 
So you're playing back a recording of their voice, yes, uh, and you altered it slightly, yes, and you're asking them to identify whether it's their voice or someone else's, yes. I mean, and, and, and normal controls, people without psychosis or hallucinations, are asked that question. They're able to correctly identify their voice, even though it's distorted. They'll make errors, but the error rates are are generally less in in healthy subjects and in patients without sort of hallucinations or overt sort of positive symptoms. Yeah. So the, the other control group was psychotic people, yes. but without auditory hallucinations. They were carefully screened, so that there was no known history of auditory verbal hallucinations. They had sort of varying levels of delusions, but they certainly had no hallucinations. So the idea was that any different group differences we found were specific to, to the hallucinations. Okay. And um, what you discover is people with um, auditory hallucinations seem to make more errors. Now, some people might say about hearing that very brief description of the method, maybe they're making the errors precisely because they're hearing voices and it's tougher for them to sure. uh, make, make the discrimination because there's so much more going on in their heads. Sure. So therefore they're getting confused. Yeah. I mean, I don't, you know, these patients weren't necessarily actively hallucinating at the time of the experiment. In fact, any... The, the criteria was that they were experiencing hallucinations in the week that they were tested. But did you try to make sure they weren't actually actually yeah, hallucinating I mean, any, when they're in the MRI scanner? Any um, patients who reported hallucinations while they were taking part in the research, we, I mean, we finished, we finished the scan, but that data was excluded from the analysis. Okay. Of course, with, with, you're depending on the self-report of the patient often, and these are sort of internal experiences, so it's very difficult to know for sure. Um, but yes, I mean, one or two patients did report sort of pretty much constant hallucinations during the testing, and then their data was excluded. So while they're having this experience of their voice being fed back to them, but slightly distorted, they're sitting in an MRI scanner. Yes. This measures brain activity yes. while they're having this auditory experience. Yes. So why were you doing that? Why were you looking at brain activity at the same time? Well, again, we were just interested to see what the sort of neural correlates of this process um, were. I mean, previous research has suggested that the auditory cortex is obviously very important and that the auditory cortex signals when there's a mismatch between what's spoken and what's perceived. Again, we, ju we just wanted to see that what was going on in the brain during this process and if it was different in patients with hallucinations compared to those without and healthy, healthy volunteers. So what do you think the results of your experiment demonstrate? I think the results demonstrate that there is um, d different activation in, in areas of the brain with pa in patients with hallucinations. Um, the areas that we identified were the auditory cortex, the superior temporal gyrus, part of the auditory cortex, and the anterior cingulate. Now, interestingly, the anterior cingulate is a part of the brain that's known to be involved in attentional processes, also in possibly identifying self-referent material as well. And maybe when there's a conflict in a response, the, this area is activated as well. So it seems like it's an area that the brain uses when the task demands are high. This area was underactivated in patients with hallucinations. A lot of research has shown now that this area seems to be implicated in patients with hallucinations. I can think of at least three or four, maybe more, neuroimaging studies 
that have shown differences in this region in patients with hallucinations. It's very difficult to know what the exact cognitive process is that this area subserves. Um, again, it may be something to do with, it, with modulating attention. It may be something to do with self-referent processing. Um, what we do know for sure is it's, it, it's not activated to the same degree. And this may, um, this may have implications for activation in other regions of the brain as well, particularly sort of sensory areas. But let's just focus on that particular part of the brain. You're saying that it's underactivated in people who are hearing voices. Compared to the reference groups. Yeah. So it's not as active, and we're not entirely sure what this part of the brain does. But we think it's something to do with attention, and it's something to do with maybe discriminating between self and non-self, or attending to self. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, and I think it's a bit of a ubiquitous sort of brain region. It comes out in a lot of research, you know, attention. I mean, anything that seems to involve a lot of engagement in a task um, and also some emotional processing as well. This area, different parts of this brain region tend to be implicated. Its exact role in hallucinations or the experience of hallucinations or identifying the source of internal, external speech is is not entirely clear. I mean, that would be something for future research to, to address. Is this the first time this kind of research has been done, what's been published in this paper? Um, Similar studies have been done using a model where patients speak aloud and hear the speech fed back to them. The the crucial difference is, is that when patients speak or hear the auditory signal fed back to them, it's, it's considered a motor action, so they're producing this feed forward signal which fits into the inner speech and the self-monitoring model. Um, the difference here is that they're just making these sort of conscious appraisals. There's no feed-forward component, no sort of self-monitoring component to this. So that's how it differs. Is it too early a stage yet, or does this research have any treatment implications? I think it's too early to say, yeah, I, I can't see any clear treatment implications for it. Although I should point out that, you know, biased thinking and perhaps... Um, faulty appraisals are something that are used in sort of cognitive behavioural therapies or something that were addressed rather, should I say, in cognitive behavioural therapies for hallucinations. The rationale is is quite simple in that if you can't stop um, someone experiencing voices or hallucinations, what you you can do is perhaps change the way they, they appraise the experience. So instead of experiencing something as as a distressing or they, you can teach them or they can be taught to try and appraise it in a slightly different way so it's um, less disruptive to their lives. And that is one of the problems with this research, isn't it? You can't be sure what brain activity you're seeing is actually the initiator of the experience or actually a person's reaction to the experience. No, that, that's quite correct. I think you, you, could, you could level that criticism, a lot of neuroimaging research. I mean, the causality is is not always easy to in, infer in these type of experiments. So what's the next step with the research that you're doing? Rather than looking at isolated regions and how areas like the anterior cingulate or the uh, temporal temporal regions are activated in isolation, look how they how they're activated together in kind of connectivity um, studies. So looking at how one area directly modulates our activity and one area directly modulates activity in another. Um, these are just sort of analytical techniques where you can 
you can construct models to see how activation in one area explains activation in the other. I mean, we know that the brain doesn't work in a kind of isolated, localized fashion, that the brain works by utilizing sophisticated networks. So trying to establish how these networks work together and how they how they differ in patients with schizophrenia or patients with hallucinations is obviously the goal of research for the future and some studies are now trying to directly address that. Paul Allen, thank you very much indeed. It's a pleasure. Joining me today is Professor Chris Bruin, a professor of clinical psychology at University College in London. Chris has written a very interesting paper, uh, co-written a very interesting paper, uh, Mental Health Following Terrorist Attacks is the title, and it's in a forthcoming issue of the British Journal of Psychiatry. It'll be coming out in the February issue of the journal. Chris, this paper is a review of what we know about the mental health of people following a terrorist attack. What did you find? We tried to put together the results of terrorist attacks that have happened recently in Europe and overseas, looking um, across the Atlantic at uh, America, also in the attacks in the Middle East, but the majority of the attacks probably in Europe. And we thought that in the last five years, there's actually been a lot of studies reporting on the effects on the general population and on direct victims. And it was really high time that somebody put all these findings together in an easily digestible form. So it's a review, really, of other people's research and pulling it together. Yes, that's right. And in particular, we wanted to say, well, can we actually make any meaningful estimates about what proportion of the population are likely to suffer uh, substantial stress after a terrorist attack? How long is this going to last? And what difference does it make if you were directly involved in the attack itself? And what would you say are the main findings of the paper? Well, the first thing that's very striking is that there are widespread increases in stress in the population as a whole, even in people who live a long way away from the site of the terrorist attacks. But these um, increases in stress tend to be quite short-lived. They're pretty high if you ask people within a week of a major terrorist event, but they're beginning to decline already after a couple of weeks, and they soon go down to quite a low level again. And this is probably because... For many of those people, some of the uh, responses to the terrorist attack may um, involve sort of very real considerations about the safety of themselves, their families and their communities. So it's probably appropriate to feel more anxious, to, to rethink the precautions that you're taking, to wonder whether or not something like this could happen to you or the people you love. But people seem to fairly rapidly become reassured about that unless they have particular reasons to be affected by a particular attack. That's one of the interesting problems here, which is obviously people are going to get very anxious and stressed if they're very near an attack or they've witnessed an attack. One of the questions that immediately arises is, what's pathological? How, how do psychologists and psychiatrists go about deciding whether some emotional response is pathological or understandable? Well, most of these emotional responses look pretty much identical in the short term. And you can really only tell if something is pathological um, if it's something that doesn't go away. So, for example, we found that um, two and a half to three years after a terrorist attack, about 20 to 25 percent of people who were directly involved and present at the attack are likely to be suffering from a diagnosable psychiatric disorder, and which, which is actually impairing their life, their social relationships, and their work. So I think one can see from that that this is not just a natural response, but it's something that's had, in many cases, quite a devastating impact on the person. 
The striking thing for me about the paper was the kind of um, regularity of that finding. Many different studies done, many different parts of the world, seem to very strikingly get a very similar proportion of people directly involved in an attack who are actually there when the attack occurs in terms of the proportion of them that end up in some kind of psychological trouble many years later. I mean, that, that regularity is quite striking, isn't it, the proportion? My co-author Matthew Wally and I were actually very struck by this ourselves, and almost every single study showed that 30 to 40 percent of people who were actually present at the site of a terrorist attack uh, developed a diagnosable psychiatric condition, usually post-traumatic stress disorder, or PTSD as we call it for short. Now, a lot of people are surprised by that figure because in a way they would say that figure is quite low. You know, they would, they would imagine that if you were right there when the attack occurs and you narrowly escape death, that actually they would have thought the vast majority of people would end up with some kind of psychiatric disorder afterwards, um, or a very, very high proportion. What are your thoughts about the fact that it's only roughly speaking a third each time? Well, this is consistent with what we know about um, response to other traumatic experiences. There's, there are very, very few traumas where more than half of people actually end up developing a psychiatric condition. And this reflects the fact that it's not just the overwhelming horror and, and, and fear associated with the event that's important, but it's also how people deal with it afterwards. What determines if someone goes on to develop PTSD, which doesn't go away, has got a lot to do with their social environment, it's got to do with the way in which they interpret the events that they happened, it's got to do with the particular coping strategies that they use. And the majority of people um, do have good social support, they don't jump to inappropriate conclusions about the event, and they adopt sort of reasonable coping strategies that do end up helping them. In a way, I'm particularly interested in the group of people who don't go on to develop psychiatric problems. And one of the words that's used to describe these people are resilient. Um, what do we know about resilience factors? Well, I'm, I have a little problem with the word resilience, I suppose, in that only too often it's, all it seems to mean is the people who don't develop a disorder. And because we know that actually most people following a traumatic event don't developing a, a disorder, resilience is actually the norm. So it's not clear to me that there really is anything to explain. I think if we wanted to make something of resilience, we might, we might try to focus on people who have not just kind of coped well with it and not been particularly disturbed, but have actually come away with something very positive about the experience. And it's not unusual for people to say it has actually changed their lives in a positive direction, even though it may also have had a very negative impact on them at the same time. Do we happen to know what proportion of people seem to have taken away something positive? It's difficult to put a, uh, an exact figure on it, um, but certainly in the general population studies, um, something like 30 or 40 percent often say that they uh, take away something positive, but this doesn't mean that they are... Taking away something positive is not imply that they are not negatively affected by it as well. Often people say that it changed their view of themselves or the world in a positive and a negative direction at the same time. So they were sort of, they felt it was difficult to cope afterwards, but they also might have been quite pleased with how resourceful they were in the circumstances. So there's the people who are actually directly involved in an incident who are actually there. Then there's the kind of wider population who may have seen it on television. What do we know about what's happening to them? This is a very interesting question. Um, in the United States, for example, after the attacks of September the 11th, what we do know is that there was um, an increase in traffic fatalities. 
which was actually much greater than the number of people who died in the terrorist attacks of September the 11th. And what people think is that because um, people were frightened of air travel afterwards, more people travelled by car, which is objectively more dangerous, and more people died as a result because of a feeling that somehow that this would be safer than travelling by air. In fact, this wasn't the case, and the number of fatalities increased. There were also other effects. For example, there were short-term increases in um, heart attacks and cardiovascular problems um, after 9-11, so these attacks can have quite a number of sometimes rather surprising indirect effects, at least for a short time. It sounds, though, from your paper that in the, in the hours or the days or the weeks immediately following an incident, there's really a very large proportion of the population that seems to be very affected with severe emotional symptoms, and then this seems to drop off very dramatically. And there seems to be a repeated pattern you see all around the world. Yes, I think this may be people's concern, not just for themselves, but also for people they know. What we may be picking up here is a sort of em empathic uh, response to the people who were killed or injured in these attacks, uh, a concern for other family members and friends who may live in other parts of the country. Whether or not it's actually about feelings of personal fear, I think, is not really very clear at the moment. But certainly there is a level of disturbance and anxiety and a wish to understand more about what's happened and to think through, are there any implications for myself and for the people I know? What do we know about um, the impact on people who may have some kind of connection with victims in a disaster? I'm thinking, for example, of someone who is a regular train commuter and then sees on television some terrible train crash. Um, is that connection between them and, and victims likely to have an emotional impact? Certainly in the short term, I think people who travelled by train, for example, in Madrid following the train bombings showed a sort of stronger emotional reaction than people who travelled to work through other ways. So certainly those were, in those cases there would be sort of direct implications for the person's own safety and, the, and that of the people they knew. So any kind of connection of that kind. But also it's been shown that minority groups tend to respond with greater levels of stress after these uh, terrorist attacks. So, for example, in London, after the bombings, it was um, ethnic minorities and Muslims in particular who showed uh, extremely high levels of stress over the short term. Fortunately, this didn't last. Um, six months later, the, the levels of distress had gone back to normal. What about rescuers, people in the fire services or the ambulances or the police services, people who have to go in uh, to, to an incident? I mean, everyone else is running away, and these people have to run towards it and rescue people. What do we know mm. about the psychological impact on those people? Well, we certainly know that it's much less than people who are direct victims who have been in the middle of an attack which they had absolutely no warning of and no preparation for. Members of the emergency services um, obviously are well prepared and trained to deal with these situations. But there's an interesting in-between group of people who find themselves to be rescuers without necessarily having been trained for that role. People who just happen to be passing by. People who maybe are just sort of beginning, have a little bit of first aid training, for example, and want to help. And the impact on, on that group, um, who have no sort of detailed preparation and training and backup following the incident, is probably quite a lot greater. We also need to consider that what rescuers actually see, the role that they're actually asked to play, can vary an enormous amount, even with the same incident. And for people who have high levels of exposure to grotesque death, for example, or to horrific sights, 
then those are the people who are always likely to be at greater risk of having psychological difficulties. And um, for this reason, occupational health services play a very important role in monitoring the levels of stress that members of the emergency services are exposed to and trying to keep this within reasonable limits. Uh, from your paper, it seems that we know something about what it is in terms of what happens when people arrive at a scene, that the rescuers or the professionals, what is it that might predict uh, who's going to end up in trouble later in terms of their activity or their exposure at the scene? Yes, I think um, also in, uh, after September the 11th, a lot of um, firemen worked extraordinarily long hours and, and made extreme personal sacrifices in, because they felt they owed this to their colleagues who had died. And I think this is a very understandable uh, and normal reaction. But at the same time, I think it, it, it possibly um, created some or ex exacerbated what was a situation that was already very difficult to deal with. So I think often one's feelings of, of wanting to make things better about one's obligations sometimes interfere with sort of more decisions that you, make, you might make from a more sort of um, detached standpoint about, well, objectively, what would really be the best thing for my health? What would be the thing that would keep me going for longest? And I think those questions often get quite confused when one has a very close personal connection to people who were injured or died in an attack. So it sounds a little bit as if um, the, the managers of those services in a crisis uh, need actually a bit of psychological input in the way they think about the way they deploy uh, the rescuers or the professionals involved at a scene. Yes, I think um, all these attacks and scenes are never entirely predictable, no matter how good your training is, no matter how many exercises you've done. People are always going to be exposed from time to time to sites that they're not ready for things that they couldn't have imagined seeing, things that really go beyond what is the sort of normal course of human experience. And I think none of us really know how we might respond to that. In a way, um, it perplexes me um, that the, the rates of psychological disorder seem to be so significantly lower in, in the rescuing professionals, as we found in your review. I mean, any theories as to why that might be? Is it something to do with their training or maybe graded exposure? They've been exposed to terrible things beforehand? Well, I think there are a number of factors. First of all, of course, they're not coming to it um, as a surprise. They haven't got the shock that the direct victims have. They know that something has happened. Um, they know what they're going to, at least in very broad terms. Um, secondly, they have their training. Secondly, they're doing it there. Thirdly, they're doing it as a group um, with their colleagues who they know and trust. And fourthly, they have mechanisms open to them for discussing what, what happened, um, how well they responded, and they have occupational health services to back them up. So I think there are, there are lots of reasons why one would certainly expect that their rates of disorder should be much lower. But we have to bear in mind that for sometimes for emergency workers, they're, they're coming to a particular scene, having been to a large number of similar events one after the other. And the cumulative effect of exposure sometimes results in people um, reacting in a way that surprises both them and the people who manage them. What about perhaps the most vulnerable group of all, children? What, what did your uh, res review find about the impact on children of uh, th these kinds of terrible experiences? It's difficult to draw firm conclusions about the effects on children because not many studies have been done. But it's, what's very interesting, if we look at the follow-up of the survivors of the Aberfan disaster, then years and years later, 
something like 40% of the survivors of that are still showing quite elevated levels of psychological symptoms. Now, maybe that's because we didn't understand so much about post-traumatic stress reactions at the time and services were not made available that would be made available now. But whatever the reason, it's an indication that a traumatic event that happens to a child can have very long-lasting consequences. And there's nothing in what we know to suggest that children will be less impacted by being exposed to these events. If anything, they're likely to be more impacted, partly because it may be harder for them to make sense of what's happened and to, un and to appraise what kind of threat there is for themselves and their families in the future. Um, I was also struck by one of the important points you make in the paper about this notion that actually with an adult, it may well be that adults, maybe more other adults, may be more able to pick up that that adult is in trouble emotionally or psychologically, but actually they may have more difficulty detecting it in children. I think a lot of adults have expectations about what children are and aren't likely to feel, which may be quite at variance with what's actually the case. And also, of course, if parents were involved themselves in an incident, they may be dealing with their own traumatic reactions. It may be quite difficult for them to be sensitive to their, their child's reactions as well. Or they may simply not anticipate that, that, for example, if the adult has been in a dangerous situation, how much their children may worry about the fact they might have been injured or that they might be killed in the future. So for that reason, it's sometimes maybe easier to look within a school context at children's needs and perhaps for people who are slightly can step back a little bit from the immediate family situation to think about how has this individual child responded, are they wanting to talk or write or draw for example about things that they've seen or heard about on television and it may be easier to do that out of the family sometimes rather than necessarily in the family. Perhaps one of the most surprising things about your fascinating review was the fact that in the West, at least, looking at things like the uh, September 11th incident, people who were directly caught up in the incident, in fact, the vast majority of them seemed to receive some kind of psychological help. And yet they seem to be, uh, in the wider population at large, um, a problem there, in that many people in the wider population at large, not those who were actually there, developed quite severe psychiatric symptoms but didn't get help. What's going on there? I think if people are actually injured or receive hospital treatment, then they often get linked up with hospitals or GPs or um, medical services, which is easier for them, for doctors to recognise that perhaps someone's having a problem overcoming something and to make an appropriate referral. But of course there are lots of people who don't actually need treatment on the spot, but they nevertheless were there, and perhaps they leave afterwards or they go home to their families, but they're still profoundly affected by what they've seen uh, and what they've heard. Now, that group may have difficulty in accessing services. It's, we all know that it's quite difficult. It's a big step to make contact with mental health services for the first time. And the uh, research in America after September the 11th shows quite clearly that the people who were affected were likely to get treatment if they had previously been in contact with mental health services. So they were, they were used to the idea, they knew who to ring up, they knew what to expect. For people who've never had any mental health treatment, then it all, may all seem very strange and quite scary. Um, and they may simply not know, firstly, that they have a problem, secondly, that something can be done about it, and thirdly, where they should go for help. So um, what are the recommendations for the future that arise out of this review? 
I think the major point that we, we would like to get across is the fact that there are likely to be quite large numbers of direct victims who are having prolonged problems and who are not receiving help. And so I think the challenge for us all is to think, how can we identify that group? How can we sort of reach out to them, help them to recognise and identify they're having a problem which isn't necessarily going away, and tell them that they actually can receive some quite practical and short-term help, which will make a real difference to their lives. Isn't there a problem here, though, which is that there are many, well, there are at least some mental health professionals who wonder whether there's too much psychologisation, word we might use, of people's coping response to a disaster, and that actually this idea of of shipping counsellors or psychologists in very early is a mistake, and that we should wait for a long period of time to see if people actually develop problems before intervening. The The notion, in fact, that psychological intervention is not only not helpful, but actually could be counterproductive. It could people take people's natural coping skills away. And so therefore, we shouldn't psychologise disaster. Well, I'm glad you raised that point, because there are two quite different strategies here, one of which seems to be helpful and one of which doesn't. And the strategy that you referred to about sending in large numbers of counsellors to deal with everybody who's been involved in an incident at a very early stage doesn't particularly seem to be very helpful and in some cases, as you suggest, it may interfere with natural coping resources. That's a completely different matter from identifying people who one month or two months or three months later have still got significant symptoms and they're not getting better. I think as long as people are on a recovery track, as long as people are saying, well, I have been severely affected by this, but I'm getting better, I'm getting back to normal, I can feel that, that's what we want to hear. The people we most want to identify are the ones who are really stuck. They're still having a lot of flashbacks, they're still very uh, jumpy, they see danger all around them, they can't sleep, their eating is disturbed. And if this is going on and it's not getting better, we really have to intervene and try to help with this before it gets any worse. Some people um, listening to this are maybe, possibly in the future, going to find themselves in some kind of terrible disaster, God forbid. Any thoughts about how they might think about dealing with it, um, should it, should it happen to them? Uh, any, anything that could be, be helpful in terms of preparing oneself for the possibility of disaster, given the increasingly uncertain world we seem to live in? Yes, there, there is really quite a lot of good advice now, um, about how to deal with and what advice to give to people who've who've been affected in these kinds of incidents. And the main emphasis at the moment in the short term is very much on looking at people's needs for things like information and reassurance. So when people have been directly involved in something, they want to know what happened to their family member or what happened to the person who was sitting next to them on the train. They need access to information about that. They need reassurance that uh, they're safe. Also, there are often very many practical problems that people have got that need to be dealt with. The fact they can't perhaps go to work any longer, the fact they have an injury that needs treating. And the first job really is to deal with those sorts of practical problems. We can also advise people that don't underestimate the impact that being involved in this kind of experience can have on you. Don't feel that you really have to be back at work next day at 8.30 in the morning, carrying on as though nothing had happened. Take some time to actually reflect on the impact that it may have had. Allow yourself to acknowledge the possibility it may have an impact and talk to your friends and family about what's happened. Don't try to be Superman or Superwoman. This will have been a huge shock and 
it's really quite reasonable to take a few days, and some people may need a week or two, just simply to work out where has this left them. So it's all about really looking after yourself, not making excessive demands on yourself, making allowances for the fact that you may need a bit of time and a bit of understanding and a bit of support to recognise what a very big and significant experience you've gone through. Chris Bruin, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Joining me today is Vanessa Pinfold, Head of Research at the mental health charity Rethink. She and several co-authors have published a paper in the February edition of the British Journal of Psychiatry entitled Best Practice When Service Users Do Not Consent to Sharing Information with Carers, which sounds like a rather long and boring title, uh, but actually is a paper about a very important subject, fascinating subject, which is how we preserve confidentiality when dealing with people suffering from psychiatric problems. And this is a really big issue, given in particular the stigma and taboo that surrounds psychiatric illness. So Vanessa, let's start off with what was the point of this paper? What were you attempting to do? Well, I think the main focus of the paper is looking at how professionals share information with carers. And it comes out of a body of of work and research that shows that carers really need to be supported through information um, to to do their role effectively. And there being a lack of uh, us understanding what the barriers to information sharing in mental health are with carers, but a lack of evidence um, around well, what can you do, what, what is best practice in this area. Um, and so there'd be no systematic attempt to, to draw on the experiences of, of trust and individual carer groups across um, England to find out actually what was working rather than what wasn't, because we often hear that it's a massive problem. For example, in a, a survey that Rethink carried out in 2003, Rethink carers um, were asked about how um, professionals shared information with them. And a third of them said that they felt that um, professionals were using confidentiality as a reason for not sharing um, information with them most of the time. Um, And another third said that they sometimes use that as a reason. And so it was seen as a really big issue. And I think it's, um, you already mentioned stigma and the taboo around mental health. For carers, patient confidentiality and information sharing is right up there with stigma and discrimination as as a really challenging issue for how they can work effectively with services. Let's um, talk about what we mean by information sharing. Could you give an example of the kind of thing you're talking about? Well, what we looked at in our research is information sharing can be um, described in various ways and there's different types of information. At a very basic level, information is about giving a carer a leaflet. For example, in NHS Trust, what the different services on offer do, how they operate. Information sharing with carers includes um, information such as if the person you're supporting becomes unwell, who is the person to contact in emergency? Another level, information sharing, is if my son or husband is given a diagnosis of schizophrenia, what is that? What does that mean? Um, Information sharing also means helping a carer to detect signs of when somebody might be deteriorating um, or knowing what to do in cases where somebody's very, very unwell at home, carer may feel very vulnerable, and they don't know how to talk to the person they're supporting. They don't know how to react, and they don't want to make the situation worse, but they find themselves in a situation situations they've never been in before. And therefore, through information sharing, in its broadest sense, whether it's a conversation with a professional, whether it's information that you gather from the internet or if it's a book, um, carers feel that they need in the widest sense access to information about mental health to ensure that they can 
carry on that role in the most effective way. And I think what's very telling is when you ask carers what they want most to change, they basically say, well, I want the person I'm supporting to get better, and then I'd have no needs. But while they're still unwell, I need information in that broadest sense, in multi-level multi um, kind of ways of looking at information sharing, to make sure that I can provide the best possible service to ensure that I can look after myself, but I can also provide good support to my friend or my relative. Let's um, unpack some of those examples, because in, in my daily clinical practice, for example, uh, one problem might be that we might have a patient admitted to the ward who is, let's say, in a florid psychotic state, um, paralysed by delusions and hallucinations, and we need some information about how they got into that state, what, what happened to them before they came into hospital. Um, and in a way, we've got to get the patient's permission uh, to, to, to get that information from uh, their mum or their dad or brothers or sisters or friends or relatives or even people they might be living with. Isn't that a, a key problem here? You've identified that actually information sharing flows both ways and carers are a really important resource for health professionals to understand the context. Um, and, if, you know, people often say, you know, um, mental health professionals have um, uh, support um, the service user for you know, a short period of their life, I live with them full time. So yes, there's a difficulty when um, somebody comes into hospital, they're very unwell, they say, I don't want you to talk to my relatives, I don't want you to have anything to do with them. What do, what do the doctors do in, that, in those circumstances? And I think the, the difficulty around information sharing is there's no prescriptive answers. And when we carried out this piece of research, we found there were no blueprint solutions, there were, there were no firm... Um, frameworks um, around how you make those decisions. You have to use your best clinical judgment. And therefore, at times, if a service user is saying, I don't want you to have contact with my, my family, you may, may make a clinical judgment that actually I need to um, in the interest of the patient because I can't treat them safely and effectively without talking to the family and getting some level of information from them. So, according to your paper, I'm allowed to do that as a clinician, am I? Even if the patient refuses uh, to give consent that I contact their relatives, if I feel it's absolutely necessary in order to, 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 to get them better, I'm allowed to do that? I think what the paper is saying is ideally you need to get the consent of the, you need to get the, consent of the patient and you need to explain to the patient why it's so vitally important that you speak to their, their, relative, their relatives and you might leave it a few days and revisit that decision with them and maybe in a, few, in a, you know, in a couple of days where you, when you can really explain to them um, why it is and, and the, 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 sort of, the sort of information you're going to be asking them because often when um, what the research found is people you know people are approached can we can we um, um, ask from your carers for information or can um, we talk to your carers about you and they're saying no blanket no but if you then dig beneath that and find out what is it you don't want them to talk to the relative about it's actually something very specific um, and therefore that's why it's important that that um, the process of the the idea of taking consent one of the key themes that came out of the research is consent is, an, is not an event it's a process um, and it takes time to build up a rapport with your patient as, as, um, as everybody knows and therefore the, the whole process of taking consent has to take t um, place over a period of time now that's very difficult if you've got somebody who's recently admitted to hospital and you desperately want to find out some context um, but I think you know again it's very difficult the, the paper's not saying what you should or shouldn't do it all comes down to professional judgment um, and often in those situations people would discuss it with the clinical team and they'd make a decision in the best interest of the patient and what our paper does suggest is that those decisions are documented well and when the patient is um, 
recover to a point where you feel that you can then explain your actions, that dialogue can happen because what, what we also found is where um, confidentiality is broken and service users become very angry about that, it, it can aid that process by having a discussion at a later date to explain why it happened. Um, and, and they may not be happy about it, but the sense that it's been explained to them um, um, it kind of helps that process. But let's go back to the example, let's say, of a patient um, who's very unwell on my ward, and let's say, and this doesn't happen that often, but let's say it was happening, this patient was hearing voices, and as a result of that ex psychotic experience, I felt that the patient could possibly pose a danger, let's say, to a relative they're at home with. Um, let's say the patient refuses to consent to allow me to speak to that relative, but I feel it's important to warn the relative about this symptom and that they should be aware that it could mean that the patient might pose a possible danger. Um, your, your sense of reviewing the literature is that I'm allowed to warn the relative? Yes, because it's a you have to balance the right of the patient to privacy and the rights to the care to have information on a need-to-know basis. And therefore, particularly if you feel that the um, relatives could be put at risk because of a piece of information that, you're, that you feel you really need to share with them, um, then you have... Following your professional judgment, um, you're allowed to share that piece of information. But what the paper says in terms of best practice is that you would record that decision and you record the decision that the, the patient themselves was unhappy about that um, and hadn't given consent. Um, and that you, sh you, before you break patient consent, one clinician wouldn't take that decision on their own. They would discuss it with colleagues. So discussing it with colleagues seems to be very important. Yes, I think that's, again, um, so that you can um, yeah, test out your decision with other people, and it's a shared decision-making within the clinical team, because then you can, you can um, collectively decide that you think it's in the patient's best interest and the carer's best interest to share that information. I mean, what we hear... I mean, the... Discussing the um, scenario around inpatient admission is important because the research showed that that is where carers feel um, um, collecting information is extremely, extremely important, but also very challenging and difficult. So the stereotypical situation where, you know, it's the first um, episode of a psycho um, um, psychotic episode, somebody goes into hospital, um, you know, the person's admitted um, and you go home and that's it. You, you, you're, you, know, you ring up and you say, people say that they can't share information with you because of patient confidentiality. People don't want you to talk, you know, the patient doesn't want us to talk to you, et cetera, et cetera. That's an extremely isolating time for the carer. They're extremely worried. Um, and so it's, it's very important to talk around this situation because it's seen that if you can get that right, a lot of the other situations around information sharing would probably fall into place because it seems to be this is, the, this is a really key pressure point in the, in the system. Now, you work for Rethink, which is an organisation that links up with, with uh, people who are suffering from mental illness, but also their carers. Is this a live issue in, in the sense of, um, do you deal with many complaints over issues of confidentiality or information sharing? I mean, one of the reasons that Rethink wanted to get involved with this piece of work with the Institute of Psychiatry um, was because it's a, a massive issue for our for our, for people that are members of our charity that are carers um, and our national advice service um, which takes um, case studies and um, helps carers to make complaints against NHS trusts and goes through inquiries um, has a whole loads of case notes um, um, you know where this is central to the issue and you know we have we have circumstances and people that took part in the study where they have lost the person, their relative, who's taken their own life, 
and the carer feels very strongly that that would not have happened if there had been better information sharing between the trust and the care team and themselves. So that's the kind of that's the motivation within the charity to try and address this. And the response from this research has been phenomenal. And we know that the service delivery and organisation that funded this piece of work um, had done a, has done a review of um, their briefing papers, and this is the most popular briefing paper of their whole series. So I think it's a very live issue, both for carers but also for professionals, and that's what our research showed. People want to get it right, but they don't know where the boundaries are. And it's also very important that carers are helped to understand that they don't need access to all of the information they may feel that they do need access to and that the the whole idea is that confidentiality isn't used as a block but it's used as a start of a conversation i think the central theme through all of the research was communication and if you can improve the three-way communication between the service user the carer and the professional a lot of the barriers around information sharing and confidentiality in itself dissipate so we had carers that we interviewed said you know I wouldn't want my son to know about my you know personal history and I don't want to know about his but there's certain things I do need to know to really support him appropriately um, and I think that's the difficulty where you have a quite a, a good relationship and where you can talk rationally and logically about what might be needed then then you know in a sense it isn't a problem the difficulty is is when people are very unwell and they see their particularly see their family as part of the problem um, and therefore at that point in time they say I don't want any contact with my family I don't want you talking to my family so of course one of the recommendations out of this um, research which comes from carers service users and professionals is the use of advanced directives so that when someone is well they can say what they would like to happen when they're unwell um, recognizing that when they're unwell they they often have different views um, so there were a number of practical solutions that came out you know that came out of this piece of work um, but you know going back to your original point it is you know the the reason this is such an important issue is because poor information sharing you know it's is a, it sounds like a soundbite but poor information sharing costs lives it's interesting what you say because if we look at inquiries, official inquiries into tragic incidents like suicides or homicides linked to the mental health system, over and over again, um, the conclusion is that there was poor information transfer or sharing, poor communication. And so it, it really surprises me that up until the time I'd read your paper, such little work had been done on the subject of information transfers between people. Yes, and when we did our literature review, we found a paucity of um, other work in this area. Um, there's a few studies abroad, but you know, very little work's been done on this uh, that's been published um, through academic journals. But, I mean, at the time we were doing this piece of work, the Royal College of Psychiatrists had got a special interest group looking at um, carers and confidentiality as part of the Partners in Care programme, and have a number of um, resources that have come out of that, you know, special interest group. And NHS Trust themselves had set up working parties. Um, and what we, we started to explore this in the work, um, in, in the research, where we tried to trawl through different policy documents. And we know that we only saw a snapshot of, of what was available. And, si I mean, this was carried out in 2000 and since then in the last three years we know an awful lot of other trusts have developed policies which have looked at a carer strategy and within embedded within that inf an information sharing 
area. And where those policies work best is where, again, you've got a three-way partnership between professionals, service users and carers that come together to write those strategies and policies. So although the academic literature is not littered with papers on this, I think that we've, we're seeing in practice that the policies and codes are really trying to get at not just the theory behind it, but also the practice, because that's one of the key things we found in our policy trawl. If you just provide psychiatrists, social workers, CPNs, etc., with the legal parameters of which they're working, it doesn't really take you very far. Um, what you need is case studies, practical examples, to give people's pointers of what they do when they're in a difficult situation. And I think that's where another of the recommendations of all port comes out in the fact that professionals need quite detailed training in how to deal with patient confidentiality. And that training really does need to involve carers who can talk about the value of information sharing and some of the ways in which they found professionals have worked very well with them versus situations where it hasn't worked so well. So we were really taken with carer testimonies where they said, just the change in my um, Sun CPN has transformed my life because I now have somebody who really responds to me, who respects me and tells me when no, I ca they can't give me the information I'm asking but also deals with my um, inquiries sensitively and appropriately versus say a situation before where they felt that they had got no support and no one answered their calls etc etc. One of the things that always amazes me working as a clinician in the area is the fact that often parents or relatives or friends will omit to pass information or omit to contact the uh, mental health team, uh, be it an inpatient one or an outpatient one, um, yet that information is absolutely crucial or vital in terms of understanding what's happening for the mm. patient. It's almost as if they seem to think we can do a blood test and we can find this stuff out some other way. I mean, information is the most valuable thing in psychiatry, and if we weren't there witnessing an incident in someone's home or on the street, um, which we, we need information about to get a sense of what's going on for the patient, I, I'm, I'm perplexed as to how many relatives or friends think we can, we can make a, a, a valid assessment. Mm. I, 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 am I alone in finding this very puzzling, or is it actually understandable from the, from the, the parents' or carers' standpoint? I think it's very understandable. I think a lot of the carers we spoke to can't believe that professionals feel they could make a judgment without the, inf the valuable information that they have to offer. The paper does pick up on this, and a social worker comments on the fact that, you know, often carers are very fearful of the system. They're worried about the stigma, um, and they're cautious about sharing information for a whole raft of reasons. One of them may be that they're worried that their confidences will be broken, and I think that's a very real issue. Service users want their confidences maintained, and carers can as well, and, and where that doesn't happen, it can really affect the relationship between the service user and the carer and therefore people are you know are, are very anxious that about what's going to happen to the information they share but yes I think that carers in general see themselves as a, a, you know as a really valuable resource I mean one of the issues here is that the, the, the group that we work with, the average length of time that they'd been caring was 11 years. Now, that's quite a long time to have been in touch with a mental health system, and you get very savvy, and you learn how to negotiate it. And one of the other findings is that to persevere as a carer is very, very important to get what you want out of the system. I think it's very different when you have new carers that are coming in. It's, they, don't, they probably don't even realise they are a carer, and they are dealing with complex situation of what's happening in their relative's life, and also they're trying to um, work through a mental health system which is not always easy to navigate. Um, and they may be you know, quite suspicious at the beginning um, and cautious um, about how to engage. And the other issue is that often they, they aren't received with welcome arms. 
and they may have to really force their views upon a, a professional team. And that was one of, I suppose, the underpinning um, findings of the research, that if we're really going to work well with carers and if we're going to be supporting them effectively, we have to have a culture shift within our mental health service of the way we view carers and take a really holistic view of how we can support them. And until that happens, until they, they feel valued, they feel that their expertise is respected, you can see why people might be cautious. Are there any um, take-home messages from this paper for, let's say, any carers or um, relatives of uh, patients or users of mental health services who might be listening? I think the the first take-home message is that this issue is is live, it's being discussed, and trusts around the country are um, being being asked to address this in a really concerted way. And we're planning a follow-up um, practical piece of work to this research. And we're hopefully going to secure funding so that we can create um, educational modules to go out and work with um, a range of mental health professionals to put some of the principles of this paper into practice and hopefully we can get it embedded in, in clinical practice. But I think the key thing you know, in terms of messages from the paper, this is a really complex area. There are no blueprint solutions information sharing is crucial, communication is crucial, but so is the autonomy of each of the individual groups that we're talking about here, the service user or patient, the carer and the professional. And by working together and understanding the perspectives and the boundaries which each of those and the needs of each of those groups, um, our research has shown that you can find a way forward for really developing an effective information sharing protocol. I mean, take, for example, within the research we asked whether people are comfortable for the psychiatrist to meet carers alone. And there's a quite a high proportion of service users that aren't very comfortable with that and think that the psychiatrist should never meet their carer without, without them physically being present. And what we found is, you know, so for some people it would be really damaging for the therapeutic relationship, the three-way therapeutic relationship, for that to happen if a carer persisted in asking for a meeting alone when the, when the service user was really, really uncomfortable about that. But the paper kind of, um, and the research shows that there's a way through that. So you need to work with each party so that they understand why it might be that the carer needs to meet the, or would like to meet the um, psychiatrist alone. It may be that they can be supported in another way, so it's not necessary. Or it may be actually it's their needs that they need to discuss with the psychiatrist rather than specific aspects of their, um, as I say, you know, wife or, or daughter's care. And so, you know, the key thing about this research is that for every individual, there will be a different solution. Um, so there's not something you can pick up, up the shelf and say, this is how I'm going to work with, with this individual, because it all depends on the individual relationships, the context of care, the length of um, relationship between the care and the service, user, the type of relationship. So the main message out of this, which is, you know, in one way difficult, because there's no easy solutions to put this into practice, that it comes down to professional clinical judgment and a really good... Um, three-way communication between the parties. What about uh, patients listening to this or users of mental health services? What should be the take-home message, do you think, for them uh, when they're thinking about information about themselves and where it ends up? Well, I think the first thing is that the important principle and guiding kind of um, philosophy in this, in this piece of work was that service users are integral in finding a solution for information sharing with carers. And uh, something that we haven't mentioned, but the upholding the consent process was seen as paramount for service users and 
ensuring that um, informed consent was taken regularly is one of the main recommendations for this. So the right to right to privacy is, is, is the starting point for this piece of work. And I know when we, st when we started, some service users were very worried that this, that this piece of work was going to undermine their status um, and was going to lead to the floodgates of you know, carers being able to access all this information. So I think the first thing I'd like to say is to reassure people that that's not the case. And the principle of patient confidentiality was, is, is the guiding um, standard of which we are working to. And what this piece of work was really looking at was, was to help carers to be supported through information sharing in ways that, doesn't, that does not break patient confidentiality. So in the things for, um, for service users as well is, to, again, to appreciate the, the role of the carer. And again, there are circumstances where service users don't want any contact with their family. And the rules and regulations around patient confidentiality, some of them are developed because of the um, abusive, abusive relationships that can occur between, you know, within families. And therefore, it's very, very important to recognise that it won't always be appropriate to engage with any family member. Um, and so I think that's the other important thing to remember that the any kind of framework has to take on board all of the circumstances where service users are very hesitant to be supporting policies which are which look to um, open the floodgates of sharing information with carers where they in their own personal experience might find the term care very offensive and that they really um, are, are afraid that the consent process and patient confidentiality may be broken by the policies that we're suggesting. So I think what, what we would like to show through this paper is that um, patient confidentiality is the gold standard and this paper is looking at ways in which carers can be supported in other ways where those confidences wouldn't be broken other than where professional clinical judgment showed that it was important for patient safety or because of um, regulations in the law that needs to be upheld and I suppose the key maxim is that confidentiality is not absolute. Vanessa Pinfold, thank you very much indeed. Thank you.